0: We are in the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 1. If you'd like to turn in your Bible there or navigate on your device, John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. We're going to look at verses 6 through 13. I urge you to read along uh, because I believe that the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart from the Word as you are reading it for yourself, and that's a wonderful thing. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13, the topic... God sent John the Baptist to give testimony about Jesus so that everyone would hear and believe the title of our message, Hear Johnny. Father, thank you uh, this morning for this wonderful time that we can spend together studying your word. As always, Lord, uh, we believe it's the living word, that it's powerful and will not return void. You promise us, Lord, that you would get between our soul and our spirit and speak to us where no one else can to encourage and strengthen and bless us, Lord, and to share your grace and love. And so, Lord, I pray that we would understand this text and that uh, we would be able to apply it, that by the end of our time together, Lord, we would uh, be more excited about Jesus than we've ever been and a little bit more like him, too. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. We use the word effect to describe unusual phenomena. My two favorites are the butterfly effect and the Mandela effect. The butterfly effect proposes that small changes can lead to cosmic consequences. Ray Bradbury illustrates it in a short story called A Sound of Thunder. A company offers hunters the chance to travel back in time to shoot extinct species such as T. rex. One of the hunters strays off the path and unknowingly steps on a butterfly, killing it. After returning to the future, small, then-catastrophic changes are attributed to the butterfly's premature death. The Mandela Effect describes instances of shared false memory. The name comes from people being certain they remember Nelson Mandela dying while in prison in the 1980s. Mandela died free on December fifth, 2013. The most famous Mandela effect is the dialogue between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker in The Empire Strikes Back. Luke, I am your father, is an iconic phrase many remember, but that's not what Vader said. He said, no, I am your father. You should look the Mandela, Mandela effect up later. There are a ton of them, and sooner or later you're going to find one that says, what? What? That's not how you spell Oscar Mayer what, or what happened to the Bernstein bears. I thought they were the Bernstein bears. There's a bunch of them that you just remember wrong or do you crazy stuff. I actually did remember uh, Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the eighties. Uh, and so I don't know what that says. Maybe I was a part of an alien deduction or something, but who knows? Our verses in the gospel of John could be called the Jesus effect for their importance. The apostle John claims Jesus, quote, was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world that all through him might believe. John uses the word believe at least 60 times in his gospel. Believing is going to be front and center in many of our studies. I'll organize my comments around two points derived from the text. Number one. Every person you share Jesus with can believe God. And number two, every person you share Jesus with can be born of God. Let's take a look at believing God in verses 6 through 11. His disciples once asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Theologians throughout the centuries have asked and sought to answer that question. A surprisingly large number of Christians answer the question the way this reformed writer does. He says, the saving intent of Christ's sacrifice on the cross is limited to the elect, those for whom Jesus died. They reason that Jesus did not die for everyone. He only died for the elect, who before creation were predestined to believe. People who were not elect in eternity past cannot be saved. They are instead predestined for damnation. An important reform document states, the express testimony of sacred scripture that not all but some only are elected while others are passed by in the eternal decree. We teach that God so loved everyone in the entire world of mankind that he gave his only begotten son Jesus that whoever who has ever lived who believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is our embellished version of John 3:16 to emphasize that the gospel is for everyone. Now, this discussion that we're talking about, it's important because um, it, it, uh, it can tear apart churches, believe it or not. I've been dealing with this issue for about the past 20 years. It keeps cropping up in different churches uh, where people start to get involved in this doctrine and their church doesn't teach it. And then they want everybody to believe what they believe. And it's just divisive, Uh, but it has gone on for centuries. And, It's not going to be resolved in this life. Uh, Good Christians on both sides of this debate continue to debate it. And so it's never, it doesn't have a resolution. It is acceptable to hold either view. It really is. I propose something simple. Therefore, since both views rest upon biblical scholarship and a Christian can hold either, you're compelled to choose the one that offers salvation to whoever will believe. It's the better way uh, of thinking about God and his nature. I want to look upon everyone and know they are a person Jesus Christ died for, not a maybe who cannot be saved because God predestined them to suffer conscious eternal punishment in hell. Let me put it in question form. Why would you choose to believe God limits his offer of salvation if you don't have to? You don't have to, so don't. One more thing. The folks in the limited atonement, unconditional election, double predestination field of tulips are adamant that their view is the only one that has biblical scholarship. More than once I've been told that if a person sincerely studied the Bible, they would conclude Jesus died only for a predestined elect. Don't fall for that argument. Scores of scholars, resources, and church history offer biblical proof of the whosoever will heart of God i um, bringing all this up, too, because our text deals with belief and who can believe and who can't is obviously a critical issue. And so verse six, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John, the Baptist, John, the baptizer, John, the immerser, John, the forerunner. John has been known by these names. The apostle John never uses any descriptor in discussing him. He doesn't call him John the Baptist. He introduces him as a man sent from God. Have you ever introduced someone? You probably had a cheat sheet listing the person's awards and accomplishments, as well as personal details. The introduction of John featured none of those. Uh, If we were introducing him, we'd want statistics on his baptisms. Um, Here's John, who has baptized his 10,000th person just last week. Or the, uh, the number of his followers, because he had followers. There's no reference to joining his program of wilderness discipleship for nine ninety five a month or anything like that. There's no marketing at all. He wasn't promoting the locust and honey diet. Christians promote diets all the time. I mean, if you want to get biblical, this is a good, this is John. He, you go out into the backyard and catch locusts and dip them in honey and eat that. Protein, right? Pure protein. Would it be keto to eat locusts and honey? Probably. No, maybe. Sure. Why not? And there was no line of camel's hair clothing at Target inspired by John. Uh, So anyway, he was merely a man sent from God. We know some of his preparation before being sent by God. John had a miraculous conception announced by an angel. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were childless and far too old to have a child, but God had something special in mind. John was filled with God, the Holy Spirit, in his mother's womb. He leapt when Elizabeth met Mary, her cousin, and uh, it, who was with child by the Holy Ghost. He was a Nazarite from birth. He abstained from all products that come from grapes. He never cut his hair. And he was careful not to come into contact with a dead body to avoid defilement. Jesus called John a prophet. And he said, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Every Christian is the product of a miraculous second birth and filled with God, the Holy Spirit. And so we have that in common with John. You and I are sent from God. We're to go into all the world with the gospel message. And to quote the Blues Brothers, we're on a mission for God. If you don't already begin to see yourself as sent from God, then you should. You are sent from God to your family, to your friends, at your workplace, anywhere you are. Whether you chose to be there or not, whether you enlisted in the military, whatever situation you got yourself into, You can see yourself and we ought to see ourselves as sent from God into that situation. And that'll help you a great deal. Uh, Is anybody ever discouraged at work? I I mean, I know that would be rare, uh, but if you're discouraged at work, it helps to know the truth. And the truth is you were sent from God to that place. If you're not there being discouraged, some other Christian's going to be there being discouraged, right? And so you're ministering to a Christian and a non-Christian at the same time. You're not, you know, you say, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Then don't Uh, believe that you were sent from God and see what kind of an effect you can have. Now, a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament, people had no effect, right? Jeremiah preached and preached and preached, zero effect. Uh, They wouldn't do what he wanted them to do. Isaiah, we'll uh, quote him a little bit later this morning. Nobody heard what he had to say. Uh, but it was the word of God and it was important. And so see yourself as sent on a mission for God. This man, verse seven, came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Now, last week in the first five verses, we talked a lot about Jesus being the light and the life of the world. And so John is just making sure that uh, John the Apostle is making sure that that there's no confusion about John's mission, which was to point to Jesus. Uh, We could add John the witness to his titles. He spoke of Jesus, not of himself, and and he was uh, considered great for doing so. The Apostle John told us in the first five verses that in the beginning, a person called the word was with God and was God. In verse 14, he's going to inform us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Only one person can be introduced as God in human flesh appearing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire world of man lies in spiritual darkness, not just around us, but within us. We have a heart of darkness, born as we are with a sin nature. And so in the Bible, we read that Satan's emissaries are called the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's Ephesians 6.12. And so the Bible describes the world as laying in a, a deep spiritual darkness. And then mankind is described as having minds that the God of this age has blinded. That's 2 Corinthians six or 4.4, 4, excuse me, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, So it's not that you're blind, you're already blind in the darkness of this world, but it also says your very mind and way of thinking and way of living is also blinded. And so you're in a lot of trouble. There's how, how are you going to get out of spiritual darkness within and without light, 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 light five times in these few verses, two more times in verses one through five Jesus shone as light in the darkness of fallen sin darkened creation. And his light chases away the darkness. It chases away the darkness in your mind. And it chases away the darkness in the world. It is light sufficient for that. I love these, this old building that we're in. And it's, it's a blessing. The lighting is terrible. It's awful. Especially in the fellowship hall at night. I feel like I'm in a fog, you know, and, and yet we, we just can't, you know, it's crazy. And every time we look into changing the lighting, nobody really knows what they're talking about. Uh, but for the most part, you can see. But, uh, you, you know, it, this lighting wouldn't do in a bigger auditorium or in different applications. But Jesus is light enough to, to chase away all the darkness. We read in the Revelation that uh, there won't be a sun. Or a moon in the future because Jesus is the light of the place. And there won't be any darkness at all. And so Jesus came to deal with the darkness and he has. He gives light to every man coming into the world that all through him might believe. The International Standard Version is better. It says Jesus was the true light that enlightens every person by coming into the world so that all might believe because of him. It saddens me that so many commentators read these words and immediately begin parsing them to exclude those that they deem the non-elect and saying that all doesn't mean all and every doesn't mean every and those kinds of things. The grace of God necessary to believe has been called prevenient grace. That simply means it comes before enabling a person to recognize sin, to repent of sin and to believe Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. God, in his grace and by the Holy Spirit, frees your will so that you might believe. One of our favorite verses is 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Every man, all, whoever can believe. Verse 10 He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Commentator John Gill has an interesting and I think correct take on verse 10. He lived in the 1700s, so his English is a little high for us, but I think we'll understand if we read slowly. He writes this, the phrase he was in the world is to be understood not of Jesus' incarnation, for the word was denotes past existence from before the creation of the world, And the world is the world in general, as opposed to Judea and the people of the Jews in the next verse. The incarnation of the word is spoken of in verse 14 as a new and distinct thing from this. He was in the world already when it was first made and has been since by his essence, by which he fills the whole world and by his power, upholding and preserving it and by his providence, ordering and managing all the affairs of it and influencing and governing all things in it. He was in it as the light and the life of it, giving natural life and light to creatures in it and filling it and them with various blessings of goodness. He was frequently visible in the world in human form before his incarnation, as he was in Eden's garden to our first parents, to Abraham, Jacob, Joshua and others. Now, what John Gill is saying, and I like it, is that Jesus has been active from, uh, in his creation from the beginning. From creation to his first coming, the Lord has watched over mankind for millennia, providing for us, protecting us, loving us. From the garden until now, his plan of salvation has been kept on track and on time by his providence. The world did not know him. The apostle Paul expands on this in the first chapter of the book of Romans, He there says that mankind did not think it worthwhile to keep knowing God fully. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Instead, their thoughts turned to worthless things and their senseless hearts were darkened. Now, this clause here, although they knew God, refers to a knowledge of God such as Adam and Eve had both before and after the fall. Uh, It's interesting. We don't think about it too much, but There are several occasions in the Old Testament, obviously, where God appears to people and talks with them, and they know him. They may not know him in a saving way, but they know who he is. He wasn't a stranger in those days. Uh, Years after the garden, we see him talking with Cain about murdering Abel. They have a conversation. As John Gill noted, he appears to believers with some frequency uh, as a Christophany, as the angel of the Lord. Joshua, for example, as Joshua is considering how he's going to take Jericho and probably hasn't got a a, a clue. He notices someone else there standing with him. And at first he challenges him. Are you for us or against us? And this person says neither, but as the captain of the Lord's hosts have I come. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus and Joshua and he have a conversation. And so it wasn't unusual for God to appear to people. I mean, it was, it was, you know, harrowing and fascinating and wonderful, but it happened. But somewhere along the line, mankind as a whole decided, hey, we don't want to keep God in our knowledge. We don't want to think about God anymore. We're moving away from that into humanism and materialism and all of that. And so it, it fell away. Jesus did not abandon creation. Mankind abandoned their creator. In our natural birth, we prefer darkness to his light. It says in verse 11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The first his own is probably a general reference to Jesus coming to earth, which was his own creation. The second his own definitely refers to the nation of Israel. God created a new nation from Abraham through whom Jesus would be born. God became man, came into his own creation and his own created nation. Gentiles eliminated God and worshiped the images that look like mortal human beings, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Israel rejected Jesus. Isaiah long before had prophesied of Jewish national unbelief, saying, who has believed our message? And so God, when Jesus finally came in his incarnation, He found a world of Gentiles that was worshiping anything but God. And he found that his own nation would reject him, not receiving him as God. You can believe. Most of us here are believers, so you already know that. But somebody shared the gospel with you and you were enabled to believe and be saved. Your family members can believe. Your children can believe. Your friends can believe. Your employer and your employees can believe. Even our government leaders can believe, right? Anyone and everyone can believe. Not everyone will believe and be saved. It isn't because they can't believe, it isn't because they were passed over by God in eternity past. It's because they won't believe. And so look upon everyone as a uh, potential believer. Uh, Because Jesus is the savior of the whole world, especially those who believe. Secondly, every person you share with can be born of God. Any Alan Jackson fans here? You can say so. I mean, he's a pretty wonderful country singer, I guess. Biggest hit? Chattahoochee. I I was going to quote from it, but there's no part of it that is appropriate for church. But anyway, no big deal. I'm thinking of another song of his that wasn't a hit. Doesn't appear on most of the lists of his fan favorites. It's called, We Are All God's Children. It's a decent song, but you know I'm not putting it down. But here's the lyric. Here comes a Baptist, here comes a Jew. There goes a Mormon and a Muslim too. I see a Buddhist and a Hindu. I see a Catholic and I see you. We're all God's children. Why can't we be one big happy family? Dear Alan, we are not all God's children. Verse 12, but as many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The fact that those who believe have to become children of God means that all people are not God's children in their natural birth. You become God's child in a second spiritual birth. The RMS Titanic had 20 lifeboats that in total could accommodate 1,178 people the night that it sank. There were 2,208 souls on board. They did not have as many lifeboats as they needed. But notice here where we read as many as received Jesus. That means there are enough eternal lifeboats to receive whoever believes. John equates receive with believe. Believe. He says, you receive Jesus by believing in his name. And when you believe him, you've received him. Neither believing nor receiving is a work that you perform. Salvation is God's gift to be believed and received by faith. You believe in his name. One commentator put it this way. Says his name refers to all that Jesus is in his person as the eternal word made flesh. It refers to all that he did by dying on the cross as the substitute for your sins. Believing in his name means that you stop relying on your own merits and works as the way to approach God, and instead you rely totally on what Jesus did for you on the cross. It means that when you stand before God, your only hope for heaven is not good works, but rather that Jesus died for your sins and you trust in him alone. Now, Jews in the first century thought themselves the right children of God on account of blood, the will of the flesh, and the will of man. Blood refers to ancestry. Jews thought they were God's children by merely being Abraham's descendants. If you're a Jew, you were God's child. But that's not true because it requires a second birth. I understand this because I grew up as a Roman Catholic. And it was my understanding. uh, It's uh, it's false, but it was my understanding that I was saved because I was a Roman Catholic. And I was doubly saved because I was an Italian Roman Catholic. Because after all, the Vatican isn't in Ireland, is it? It's in Italy. And so I, I, that's what it means to be blood. The will of the flesh is a self righteousness that I can work my way into heaven. And of course, every religion is based on works. Uh, and, and the Jews had come to believe that their righteousness was also through works. And then the will of man this refers to the desire of someone else for you to be saved. Again, Drawing from my Roman Catholic heritage, they believe that all who die imperfectly purified, is the way they put it, go to a place called purgatory. So you can pray and offer mass for people in purgatory that they would get out sooner, that they would be short timers instead of long timers. But the problem is when you get saved, you realize there ain't no purgatory. Uh, It's not a place that the Bible talks about. It's a place made up. Uh, And so you can't pray and, uh, you know, offer mass or do anything else for people who have passed on uh, to affect their eternal destiny. The birth of a child of God is not a natural birth. It's a supernatural work of God. A person responds in faith to Jesus. They're born again. Being born again is called regeneration. I prefer the less technical but still accurate term rebirth. The rebirth is a spiritual, holy, heavenly birth that results in our being made alive spiritually. I'll let you in on another doctrinal controversy. The same folks we discussed earlier who limit the atonement to the predestined elect have an unexpected position on rebirth. They say rebirth precedes faith. In their world, you are born again, and afterward, you're given the faith to believe. If anyone knows about believing, it's John who uses the word so much. Remember what he said about why he wrote the mission of this gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so he has an order here. You read or you hear the written word. You encounter Jesus somehow through his word. You believe and then you have life, meaning you are born again. And we'll talk a lot more about rebirth when Jesus visits Nicodemus at night. Jesus says of us, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Do you ever feel greater than John the Baptist? One sense in which we are greater is that we are collectively called the bride of Jesus Christ. John considered himself a friend of the bridegroom. Maybe the best man in in our terminology. But a bride beats the best man, right? I mean, you're not there to see the best man. You're there to see the bride and the bridegroom and the bride go off together. And it's nice that the, you know, the friend of the bridegroom is there, but uh, it's really not about him. Let's build on that analogy. I I think we can be encouraged by something here. I'm betting that when you were engaged to your fiance, or at least I'm hoping that you were joyous and you wanted everybody to know you couldn't wait for everybody to meet your fiance. This is my fiance. I love him. He loves me. She loves, you know, that if you were embarrassed, you got engaged and you were embarrassed. People in your friends say, Hey, when can we meet your fiance? Oh, well, you know, I mean, one of these days, you know, probably your best friend came to you and said, what are you doing? It's clear you don't love this person. And so you understand, it's a joyous time, it's a wonderful time, and, and people see the, you know, the spark in your life, and everybody's just kind of caught up in this thing. We're the bride of Jesus, and currently we're engaged. In Ephesians, the Bible says that uh, the Lord has given us a down payment, God the Holy Spirit, of the work that he's going to complete in us. And one of the definitions of the word he uses is engagement ring. And so you can see the Holy Spirit who indwells us as kind of an engagement gift uh, uh, that promising us that the Lord who began this work in us is going to see it to completion and that we will be with him one day. If you're excited about getting married to someone on earth, how much more excited we are about the Lord being our heavenly bridegroom. But what an encouragement to think, Lord, you know, that's right. I want people to know about you. You love me. And I love you. And so no burden, just a blessing to to start to see the world in terms of how can I let people know more about this Jesus who saved me and who loves me and who I love. And praying for opportunities. Lord, give me opportunities to share. Sometimes you have to just do it. The Lord says the opportunity is for you to just share. Uh, But however it works, just think about the joy and the blessing that Jesus is in your life, and letting him be that in someone else's life. Time is short. We believe that the Lord could come at any moment. That could go on for a while, but still, any moment of any day, the Lord could come. And So let's be about his business. All of us have been sent from God to minister the grace of God in this dark world that he has shined his light into.